gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 105 for Friday, February 5th, 2016. The review segment, it's the day that Hail Caesar comes out in America. It's a new Coen Brothers movie, guys. It's been a long time. It has been a little while, yeah. hasn't it? No, it's uh, what was the end of 2013. It's the beginning of 2016 now. Although I think we were supposed to get Hail Caesar last year based on references it's, to 2015 in the movie. Yeah, it's only been, we were, it was delayed. It's only been a little bit more than two years. Which, I mean, it's not, you know, they're willing to, they're welcome to take as much time as they want, but you know. You want the They've color. certainly taken longer in the past. Yes. Uh, yeah, I realized when I was waiting for the movie to start, like I used to get excited when it was a new Pixar movie and that has kind of faded, but now I get excited when it's a new Coen's movie, which that's like growing up. I know Mm -hmm. it really is. This is my life cycle. In the immortal Um, words of Blink-182, I guess this is growing (laughs) up. And that is my review of Hail Caesar. Uh, yeah, Hail Caesar is a movie set in the, uh, golden age of Hollywood, somewhere-ish around 1950, it's safe to say. I think it has a deliberately unclear setting. We probably won't talk about it. It's pretty nitty-gritty. Um, it stars Josh Brolin as Eddie Mannix, who, which is the name of a real guy who is a fixer at MGM. This Eddie Mannix is a basically a fixer at Capitol Pictures, a fictional studio that was also in Barton Fink. And uh, the real Eddie Mannix was kind of seen to be a pretty terrible guy. Uh, this Eddie Mannix is a, a married man, a Catholic. He's got kids. He wants to get home to see his kid's soccer game. Uh, but he spends his days running around fixing the problems of Hollywood stars, like uh, people who get pregnant when they're not supposed to, and people who are sleeping with their directors when they're not supposed to, and people who are too dumb to say things like, would that it were, to, would that it were so simple? Um, <laughs> and you kind of follow his adventures run, running around this studio lot, fixing all these things. There's an overarching plot, which is uh, George Clooney's character, Baird Whitlock. Is there a Baird, is there a, like, a close analogy for that actor? Like, is there supposed to be a Golden Age Hollywood star? I don't know. He just seems like every leading man. They keep referencing Clark Gable. Yeah. But I don't know. It's yeah. just everybody. Like, everyone yeah. just seems like everyone in this movie. Yeah, There's but really he's also, no. He seems more like the idiots that George Clooney tends to play for the Coen brothers. You know, this, this is his. specific star. Exactly. This is yeah. sort of his fourth uh, Coen brothers moron. Um, after, apparently, you know, he did the first three and they were like, no more. Yeah, uh, I, uh, I always heard it this being referred to as the third one. I think intolerable cruelty tends to get left out for the morons. I mean, that's the one one of the few. That's I seen, uh, so. prior to this film. I thought that was far and away my favorite of uh, the George Clooney idiot Coen brother movies. Wow, um, I would I would never dare forget that film. But I thought you were, you were a Burn After Reading fan. I enjoy them all, uh, but Burn they've After never Reading, really I, made a bad movie. Come you on, know, Oh Brother Where Art Thou is my least favorite of those movies. And I still enjoy that one quite a bit. So what are you going to do? We can, uh, we can end this with a fight club ranking Coens. Um, so, all right, David, I want to give you the chance to, so you, you tweeted your, your trademark dog image, <laughs> to the idea that someone would call this minor Coens, which I think is something a lot of people walk out of the same because it's light, it involves musical numbers, it's got jokes in it, it you kind of get to the end of it like there's it's you know it's one of the less totally dark movies the Coens have made I'd even say it kind of ends on a hopeful note um, those people need to go watch Lady Killers immediately it's on Netflix is that, that the that, definition of minor Coens I, I wouldn't even call it minor Coens I just think that's their most surface level that and is, even that is reaching for culture clash and has something on its mind but 
That I don't really. Intolerable cruelty are the yeah. only Coens I haven't seen. So. Oh please, please for all of our sake, start with intolerable cruelty. <laughs> <laughs> Leave the lady killers for yeah. when I have like a fever. Exactly. Um, anyway, David, why is this not minor Coens? I mean, I think that you sort of hit the nail on the head as to why anyone would call it Minor Cohen's, which is uh, really the the position that needs defending here. I, uh, but I, I think, you don't agree that it's Minor. Of course not. No, I, uh, I you know, and I, I can sort of understand at least sight unseen the impulse to call it such. I think uh, their track record would suggest that the lighter and more ostensibly frivolous films are not always as successful. Don't leave as much of a mark. I think people. Associate that tone with things, things like the Lady Killers um, and the widely uh, disliked, wrongly so, intolerable cruelty and, and, and tend, reading. yeah, and tend to see, you know, their their uh, darker films, anything from Fargo to Serious Man, Inside Lewin Davis, as the cream of the crop. Um, no then again, men. what was that? No Country for Old Men. No Country for Old Men. Yeah, no, they're certainly they're they're most pitiless of all their films. Mm-hmm. Uh, people tend to love, and I was. Shocked to remember today, one best picture. It did, um, indeed. Had you asked me, had that movie one best picture, I would have thought about it and said, yeah, no, it did. But just to forget about it and then see it on Wikipedia it was sort of mind-blowing. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and uh, the commercial certainly set you up for a lighter experience with Hail Caesar. I, I think uh, given that the first scene takes place in a confession booth, uh, the first shot is a crucifix and, and is sort of a uh, crisis of faith from the very first scene, um, immediately you know that they are darker things are afoot, more probing, spiritually probing things are, are happening here. But uh, I think people were prepared for something much lighter. And there is a sort of screwball tone to the the adventures. We're gallivanting around Capital Pictures and going from one movie to another as they sort of get to touch on all these various genres from one of those MGM aqua musical extravaganzas, uh, where Scott Johansson is, to a Ben-Hur riff with idiot George Clooney to, um, you know, a Gene Kelly type, you know, uh, Channing Tatum. As you, King, I think, Katie, both you and I last year were on the Channing Tatum is our Gene Kelly bandwagon. And here we oh, really yeah. get to see that put oh, into shit. practice. More, every, every, like, I like, genuinely believe every movie would be improved with tap dancing. So this was uh, my nirvana. Yeah, uh, that scene is, is very special stuff. But, you know, I think that the, the weight that this movie assumes as it, as it moves along all of its scenes all of its individual scenes for the most part have a lightness of touch to them they're all comic they all hinge on a relatively simple but beautifully delivered joke uh but the combined weight of what they're doing the sort of snowball effect as it moves along has a tremendous force and, and power to it and i think uh really I likened it in my review on Slate to the Grand Budapest Hotel as, as a film that sort of sums up everything that its creators are about. Um, it sort of works as a uh, a defining statement for them. And I think that this is so much about, you know, so many of the Coen's films are about lack of control and meaninglessness and the chaos of life and so on and so forth. Uh, and I think that this movie tackles that more explicitly in a lot of regards than any of their other movies. It has a character who is trying to figure these things out for himself um, and is doing so in a very limited period of time. The movie takes place over 36 hours as they try to get Baird Whitlock back from his kidnappers and a million other things. That, kidnappers <laughs> being a band of communists. Right. Kind of, kind of. Uh, and uh, and who you, who you can liken to the Hollywood 10 or other. Right. Hollywood. And they are called the future and the future, uh, both uppercase and lowercase, is something that 
that tempts and taunts uh, Eddie Mannix in equal measure, and he is offered a lucrative deal to leave the film industry altogether and to go work for Lockheed Martin. Take an and, easy and, job. Yeah, and they say, you know, what's what are people going to do once everybody owns a television? You know, it's uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there's all these these things are sort of giving him a crisis of faith. Both uh, and, and the studio, I, I also argued that he is sort of. Jesus, in a sense, here and God. There's this great joke early in the movie about how, it, which is very Jewish in its origin, uh, for a movie that sort of functions as a tale of the Christ, where you cannot visually depict God. It says you know, they're trying to shoot God for the Ben Hur movie, and they're like, you know, the divine deity to be inserted later. And uh, anyway, um, but uh, um, and the studio sort of plays the role of God here, and he's sort of trying to understand his relationship to that and. You know, it's sort of about him coming to the realization that he there, – there is maybe no greater value other than that what he can believe for himself. But if – and he says very clearly, you can see in the trailers, you know, and he smacks around George Clooney that if you, the picture has value and if, if you serve the picture, then you have value. Uh, and I think uh, that's pretty much all that adds up to a hill of beans in this crazy world. But I, I don't know if what, what could be heavier or more major than that. And I know when people talk about minor and major, they're not just talking about the severity of the themes involved, but also the quality of the picture. And this is one of those movies where I think anyone under 50 is allowed to call it a picture, one of the few, um, with a straight face. Uh, but I think that because they hit so many different marks in this movie, with you know tap dancing like Channing Tatum from one genre to another, they nail them all. Uh, there, there are characters that exist, so many characters that exist in only one scene as per Cone tradition. Uh, and they all seem like they're from different movies here, but because of the way the Cone string everything together, the whole thing, which should have fallen apart like an overly ornamented wedding cake, uh, really holds together. It ends maybe a little bit too abruptly for me, but it ends on the right note. I don't know. I don't know what there is not to love about this movie. Well, I will say this, Dave. I mean, I really, really like this movie, but you did tell me that it you were comparing it favorably to Grand Budapest Hotel before I saw it, which got me very excited. That was one of, I mean, it was my favorite movie of that year. Um, but it's it has a different pace to it. It's not a madcap adventure. There's definitely screwball elements, but it has this like strange, lethargic uh, approach and the pace to it. Um, it rambles. Yeah, on purpose, obviously. Yes. But it's it's un, it was unexpected to me hearing you compare it to Grand Budapest. So it doesn't have that same momentum necessarily. And and I think it's important to kind of go in knowing that um, because this movie takes its time. It plays, you know, it's it's it steeps in in wordplay and 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 long exaggerated moments. It's it's a totally different movie than Grand Budapest Hotel. I understand your comparison though, just with the kind of eclectic nature of characters and the interweaving of, of story. Um, and then, you know, the blossoming into something deeper. Yeah, uh, before I had both. seen this movie, I, uh, I watched Barton Fink um, kind of unexpectedly. I didn't really put, yeah. yeah, I didn't really put two and two together. I was just going back and watching some of their movies. The ones had gotten into your brain. With yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, so I watched Barton Fink and, you know, that has a very, maybe not cynical uh, take on on Hollywood, but a very paranoid, pressured, you know, terrified approach to You don't to think Barton Hollywood. Fink is lethargic compared to Hail Caesar? Well, it's... Barton it's Fink has like a movie... It's more linear. ...doom to it. Like, you, you feel like it's building to something, and you remember it really building to something when it happens. Like, 
in Hail Caesar, there's there's a lot of series where you're like, all right, we're in this scene now. What's going to happen here? Who are we? Like, right. you, you orient yourself a lot of times within the world, which, again, is deliberate, but it's just a different pace. But I, I didn't bring up Barton Fink because of pace, David. I brought it up because it's, what, are you laughing at me? Oh, what? No, no, I thought you were laughing, laughing at me. At um, I, I brought up Barton Fink. I brought up Barton Fink because it felt like another side of the coin to this kind of Hollywood story. Younger Cohen's talking about kind of working in Hollywood and like making pictures for the studio and it just being a neurotic experience, trying to write a, a boxing picture. That's not what they're about. They're about drama and it's just a very terrifying experience. And now you the have something. Man. Yeah, now you have something like Hail Caesar, which seems. You know, there's a lot of wisdom in Hail Caesar. There's a lot of acceptance. There's a lot of uh, this business isn't super crazy. And there are many times where they're saying that that the pictures are, are frivolous, that uh, there's no like, what do you, what's the point of making a movie that it's all fiction? That's what George Clooney and the communists kind of get all wrapped up in. But even in the end, they're they're giving these speeches. Oh, George Clooney gives an amazing speech. So heartfelt. And then he forgets a line and then you, it totally snaps <laughs> oh, you out of it. And you're like, oh yes, we're, we're in the movie pictures here. This is all fiction. But there's something to this crazy business that we call uh, the entertainment business, show business. Yes. <laughs> um, although it's funny that the, as you were saying, in a way, the, uh, the audience for this film, some of its detractors at least, and, and I think actually even some of its proponents and are supposed to feel the same frivolity that everyone is starting to realize about the picture business in the in the movie. I mean, like, it is sort of as ridiculous as uh, the, the movie itself. And these people are watching it. Is, but it's ridiculous, ridiculous, but it also means something to so many people. Yes. And you are creating, no matter what, if you're working for the Hollywood studios or you're making a movie for yourself on an independent level, you're... you're you're making art no matter what. And Josh Brolin slaps George Clooney at some point in this movie. Just like, wake up, you know, stop eating your own bullshit here and just make the goddamn movie because we're here to speak to the people. The, the, The money part of that line, it cannot be forgotten is that he says, you know, you'll, you'll never, um, He's like, the, the picture has value, and if you serve the picture, then you have value, and you'll never forget it so long as I am the head of this dump. Right. <laughs> like, it's he a, said, head of this dump, I totally missed that. Yeah, no, the, the, that's the, the, the cherry on top there, is that wow. he, uh, after the speech about, his self-inflating speech about the value of what they do, he, he sort of, you know, can't get away with it without just sort of yeah. acknowledging that so, a lot so of movies. So for me, all, all, all the, the pawns in this game are terrible. Yeah. Yeah, all, all the pawns in this game just feel – it feels really personal to them and it feels like the other side of the coin to Barton Fink and really hopeful too. Like, yeah, this journey making movies has been totally worth it and and yeah. I, I was kind of awestruck by that. It makes me feel good too because, you know, having worked at a lot of uh, – different publications over the years, including some very serious magazine type places, which I won't name. Um, Production. Yeah. You know, places uh, regard entertainment journalism as kind of a frivolous uh, pursuit. And, you know, this movie, you know, it makes me feel good. When we talk about movies, we're not just talking about uh, entertainment. We're talking about something meaningful, even if it's stupid garbage. It's added from a dump. That's why I was so delighted with the tone that the movie ends on because it's kind of going through all these different belief systems. You've got Josh Brolin kind of going to confession and the priest telling him it's too often and then this really incredible scene where he gathers together all these religious leaders to figure out how he can depict Jesus in the Ben-Hur movie and they have a huge debate. The one rabbi is incensed. Um, And then you get into the communists and kind of them talking about their beliefs and kind of setting up this whole new belief system and all of those get kind of slowly dismantled 
And you think about Cohen's movies like Inside Lewin Davis and A Serious Man, where like it is about belief systems kind of falling apart in front of you. But then it kind of lets you believe in cinema as the thing that's worth believing in. And not movie studios and not like some golden age of Hollywood. Like it's not, you know, Josh Brolin says the studio is your master, but we don't necessarily have to believe that. But I think sequences like the Channing Tatum dance, uh, tap dancing, the uh, Scarlett Johansson, even kind of the dumb uh, Western that Alden Ehrenreich, and we'll get to him in a second. He's amazing. Um, those movies are so good. They're so fully realized and they're stupid, but they're so satisfying. So it kind of gets to the end of this movie and it says, you know, the one thing left to believe in is movies. And it's made that argument for you with the movies within the movies that are there. Well, like, and the movies, so the movies are so perfect as a sort of, uh, see for the, for the cones here, because, uh, they are inherently, uh, illusion. I mean, they are, they are. In all the systems of belief, the people in the Coen brothers, they find themselves eroding, as you said, or in this film uh, and so many other films really clinging on to with every fiber of their being, they struggle to disabuse themselves of the notion that these things are real. But the movies, everyone who's making them knows our illusion. Everyone who's watching them knows our illusion uh, as much as we find ourselves believing in them for stretches of a time while they're happening in front of us. Uh, and I think that's what makes them such a perfect foil for yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's really bleeding, bleeding in and out, and uh, you know the blur or the blur of it all. Uh, we were talking before the podcast about aspect ratios. This movie switches back and forth sometimes, depending on are we in the movie or are we not in the movie. And later in the movie, I believe it's just like it all kind of is very fluid, um, and then the events in the actual plot start looking like these crazy movies that the Coens are shooting. And that's, that's a real enjoyment when it all just starts to blur together. There's also something notable how they're like, with the exception of a character who kind of emerges near the end, there's not really a villain in this movie. And even I was kind of expecting Eddie Mannix to be the villain because in, in history of MGM, like he kind of did right. a lot of things to ruin a lot of people's lives <laughs> for the sake of the studio. Um, but he's a good guy. And but like, they, they have said, I mean, you know, who knows how you're supposed to take the Coens words at face value. I think probably not at all, but for what it's worth, <laughs> They've said that they really, um, they really just liked his name, Eddie sure, Mannix. I mean, it's very, of course. There, but anyway, like the, this movie is full of people kind of trying to do good for you know they're not necessarily like selfless, like they're doing stupid things, but most of them don't have uh, nefarious goals, which is so different from the way we look back at the studio system. Usually, it's all about like. Judy Garland being put on diet pills and the mob running everything. Like, there's there's so little of that. There's kind of this belief in Hollywood as a place where good people are trying to do good work that it's a, it's almost kind of a naive in a way that Although, you never accuse the Scoans of being. Yeah, I wonder if this if we're supposed to think that the blacklist is going to exist in this world. Like, I guess there's no reason not for it not to. But there's no mention of it here. So, like, it's whatever, some kind of pre-time before communists got a bad rap in Hollywood. Yeah, it almost seems more alt future alt history even though there's no indication that that's true you you were talking about how it's like it's displaced from time and i don't know if this i guess this was probably intentional um because i couldn't pinpoint it but you know we're we're taking place what year do you think it starts in <laughs> it's like 1951 19 it's like you think it's that late though yeah. Well, well that's the other thing is the bikini like they mentioned the bikini atoll nuclear test which started in like 1946 and they're described as something very new Right, and then all of a sudden you show up to the the guys in the future, and literally the future, and then they're sitting in this kind of mod furniture that looks straight out of Mad Men, like 1960s or something. It's very yeah. peculiar. And, and the, television uh, is already stumming, starting to become a hot, you know, consumer property. And so yeah, on. and the House and American Activities Committee like it was already well underway. 
But. Yeah, but I don't think, you know, this is uh, these are people who often willfully employ anachronisms. I mean, you think of like Abraxas being something that's cited all the time in uh, A Serious Man, even though the movie <laughs> is set years before it comes out. It's not as if that was a detail that they overlooked. Sure. Yeah, uh, it, 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 oh, it, it all feels intentional to me. It all feels intentional. No, we're intentional. getting into nitty gritty that uh, doesn't matter. Uh, do you guys want to talk about Alden Ehrenreich? Yeah. Oh yeah, I want to talk about all the performances. Well, did you sure. did you okay, think well, that did you think that like a year or half a year or two ago had you said on the show would you like to talk about Alden Ehrenreich? <laughs> all Any one of us yes. would have been like, oh yeah. Hey, years well, ago in Beautiful Creatures, which we probably reviewed at some point, I would have been I all about enjoy it. Beautiful uh, creatures. Yeah, he was in Beautiful Creatures, which is a movie far better than it should have been, but not as good as it should have been either. Um, anyway, he plays the kind of dim bulb cowboy. Um, who is cast for some reason in this very fancy drawing room uh, comedy of manners directed by Ray Fiennes. Um, and he's, he's hilarious. He's amazing. He like walks away with the entire movie. Yeah, I mean, and it's he's really essentially... Hard there's a lot of great performances in this movie. If you haven't seen A Place in the Sun, I mean, mm-hmm. I, couldn't, I, I couldn't get away from the fact that it seemed like he was essentially the Montgomery Cliff character in A Place, the, a place well, in Montgomery the Sun. Montgomery Cliff they, had also been in Red River with John Wayne, so... Right, yeah. and they name his character in, in the movie within the movie here, directed by Lorenz Lorenz, <laughs> a.k.a. Ray <laughs> Fiennes, is Monty. Uh, ah, yeah. Um, I mean, a place in the sun seems like as good a comparison. Yeah. Uh, but, and of course, that's that's par for the course for the Coens, this guy who sort of plucked from his uh, daily circumstance and dropped in this other world by no fault or choice of his own. Uh, and they sort of have to make do with it. There's a great scene involving an editor who I don't know if it's worth revealing who plays them. Uh, it's I think one it's of those. Uh, whatever, but uh, uh, that they actually also sort of ruined that joke in the trailer by cutting out like forty-five minutes of screen time. Um, but uh, yeah, he's he's fantastic. There's this whole subplot with him going on a date cause, that he's set up with by the studio, and this again was in in sort of the golden age of Hollywood. The studio was uh, god for for so many of its employees that uh, they really controlled their images, their love lives, in a way that studios aren't really involved now. You think of studio relationships it's like yeah, Clint Eastwood made a lot of movies for WB, and they have these sort of Picture deals, but it, it, they're still sort of independent beings in relationship to the studio system, whereas back then, they're all sort of part and parcel of the same thing. Um, and, yeah, so I, he's, he's fantastic. I mean, he's, like, so over the top <laughs> in both parts. The the cowboy western that we see him play in, uh, was it called Dirty La- Old Moon? Lazy Old Lazy Moon. Lazy Old Moon, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's ridiculous, but... Uh, it's it's. We were debating so after funny. the movie. He does some amazing lasso tricks. We yes. I wasn't sure if it, they were CG or not. That's a, I um, although I did enjoy the did wonkiness of the special effects in the western bit, where he's like flipping up on a tree as the horse runs beneath <laughs> him, like and they use this sort of like stutter step. I love that. Jumps out from behind yeah. that bush to jump on the horse. Also, his his singing cowboy movie that he films that we get to see snippets of in the in the movie is hilarious yeah, i mean just so, the true. lampooning is not only pitch perfect it's it's beyond it's exaggerated to to delightful effect i really but then he kind of falls out of the movie he is le- well i don't not that long i mean there's not that much of the movie left after he stops being involved no that's true i suppose um so is I mean, are we willing to pick MVPs in this cast? Like, is that just a fool, Darren? <laughs> I mean, I well, think we should just he... run down and cheer okay, every. George every... Clooney. I I can't get enough of George Clooney's dumb Coen Brothers face. You know, when he like wakes up <laughs> and he has to shake himself out. I just and he just like guilelessly wanders into the room of the people who have kidnapped him and just assumes he's welcome. I I absolutely love when he gets to do that. So I hope this isn't the last 
George Clooney is an idiot in Coen Brothers movies because I love that face. Although, I've been arguing that if he ever wants to retire from playing an idiot for the Coens, Channing Tatum is more than ready to pick up the mantle. I, I if I had that. to pick an MVP for this movie, it'd be neck and neck between Alden Ehrenreich, whose name yeah, uh, I still right. can't say with confidence, and, right. uh, and Channing Tatum, who really, in two scenes, both of which uh, are note perfect, is really, I think he hits peak. I mean, it's... it's uh, I think it's short-sighted of anyone to call anything peak Channing Tatum because the man lives to sort of exceed our, our highest expectations. <laughs> uh, but um, if there is a summit higher than what he achieves here, I can, I, <laughs> I can't imagine what it might be. Uh, and, that, uh, that dance number is the happiest I've been. The dance number, I don't know. The dance number was a little strange for me. I didn't it's, love okay, the dance strange. number like you guys. Okay. How, how what is there not to love about yeah, this? Scene? It's just again, it's like a weirdly paced thing. I was I was more mesmerized by it than I was like tapping my foot along with this chipper number. It's a very it's just very peculiar. And the whole and the whole movie is like that. Uh, I, I look forward to watching it again and kind of really luxuriating in those moments. But it does take. I mean, I remember like the Scarlett Johansson uh, mermaid sequence. There's such long takes in that of oh like my the, god the, yeah. the swimmers slowly it's in the so water. weird it's such a weird like sensation yes. and going back under it's but so slow once once you sort of realize that this is not going to be that sort of madcap screwball comedy that you may have been led to believe that yeah. it's not going to hurtle along at the pace of a raising arizona or a burn after reading or something like that i think that you're able to downshift and and really luxuriate in these long yep. moments and that way it the this somewhat abrupt ending. I mean, it's one of those movies where you don't really realize that you're at the end when you're actually watching sort of the climactic moments. Um, It may feel a little bit uh, more in line with the story. And and, uh, I think, I think it will benefit from seeing it again. There's something about the way that that sailor scene, like that, that it embraces the homoeroticism and there's a a kind of a gay subplot that emerges (laughs) at the very, very end. That's not worth spoiling. Um, but it, it was kind of a weird, like an interesting like thread running through it that it never became like part of the theme, but it was like, you know, Channing Taylor being humped by other sailors. Yeah, yeah, there was definitely Channing some Tatum, bumping. Channing Tatum's character is definitely gay. What's well, the... Yeah, I mean, yeah, but like that's not, it's not really part of the plot. So then you're just watching this thing that's like ostensibly being filmed for like a mainstream movie that at the time everyone had been like, this is super gay. And I mean, there's stuff from studio movies that seem super gay now, but like... Not, it, it, it's but it's so all about. That you, it, but it's like, all about the. Existed. It's what we were talking about earlier about obscuring the truth and the illusion and what people choose to believe in. I mean, Eddie Mannix's job is essentially protecting the uh, public the from these rel- from these harmless truths. I mean, the fact that Scarlett Johansson's character is not the uh, the innocent virgin that they brand her as being. That Channing Tatum, uh, who is sold as the sort of. Um, prototypical all-American heterosexual male uh, is indeed very, very gay, uh, and so on and so on. I mean, these are the truths that, that Eddie Mannix and deals with Tilda Swinton's to uh, to keep from the rest of the world, and I, I think the Coens sure, have a lot I, of fun in, in letting us have it, it both ways. It was more just about it being like the text of the thing that was being filmed rather than the subtext. It was it, like, I still am vastly entertained by it, but it's a, it, it goes far on a level that like the uh, Esther Williams thing was kind of note perfect recreation of what it would have been like. I have to give praise to Tilda Swinton at this point oh, yes. in the review. Lord. I, <laughs> I won't spoil too much about what she does. She plays gossip columnist. And if, you know, talk about pacing, like whenever there needed to be torque and like just 
pick up the thing and, and speed it in another direction. There, there was Tilda Swinton to kind of inject a tremendous amount of energy and hilarity into this thing. It's she's so funny. I think her characters are the ones I would most watch a spinoff about. Of everybody, <laughs> it would be exhausting, but it would be amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, her playing twin gossip columnists, and but one of them exits the frame, and immediately the next one enters. <laughs> and, they both have or, the same or there's act. like right, or there's like a little bit of interstitial scene in between them. But it, it uh, again, it's exactly like the fact that Channing Tatum's character's homosexuality is sort of text, but also not text. I think that um, that's the same divide that they are enjoying with the Tilda Swinton character where that she replaces herself in such short succession that uh, of course you're supposed to, uh, not as if anyone wouldn't notice that it's both Tilda Swinton, but like that, that's, you're, you're supposed to be, it's supposed to be very in your face. Um, and uh, you know, Josh Wait, Brolin. Are you, say, are you saying that we're supposed to think that it's actually just one person? No, but I'm just saying that like the the joke only works if it's extremely explicit. I see. Okay. Yeah. So like there can't there, even the most casual viewer in the back row can't afford to to think that it may not actually be the same actor. Yeah. Well, and, and I, also I think that's I mean, like sort of the the style of joke that they're going they for throughout this movie. Hollywood and joke being based on Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons, who yes. were not sisters, but were highly competitive gossip columnists yes. who surely tortured the real Eddie Mannix in the exact same way. Yes. <laughs> uh, shout out to David Crumholtz and the Communist. Oh my! I was just Every about to say that. Great Jewish character actor gets to be in that. Uh, David Crumholtz in this movie. He, David Crumholtz plays fat in this movie. That's I what I. Of, he's I just like the in the back, being like. Bleh. I saw him in the background and thought he was uh, Richard Kind briefly. <laughs> Wait, are you saying is he not fat in real life, or is this? Like, I I don't think he's. I mean, I have no idea if he's fatter. He just like sounds like what you think. The like fat sounds like I don't know how to I describe that. Alex Karpovsky for a second. Or, oh my god, is in, is, is in this. Okay, <laughs> Alex Karpovsky gives this like the the grinchiest grin I've ever seen a human being give. It's incredible, and I'm not sure he has a line in the movie, but it's the yeah, weirdest smile. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw this movie and then went to Sundance and saw 40 movies and then came back only wanting to talk about it and see this movie, but I haven't seen it again. And so invariably, and Alex. And Alex Karpovsky blurs into a David Krumholtz. Yeah, uh, um, Alex Karpovsky, David Krumholtz, uh, the guy who played Cyberman in uh, in The Serious Man, who whose name I know, but I can't. Fred think. Melamed. Fred Melamed, uh, Fisher Stevens, Patrick Fischler, who was on Mad Men, mm-hmm. as uh, so many people. Yeah, it's it's well, you sit in that room and you just are hoping to have more faces pop up out of that group. Who you recognize? Well, the whole movie does that. that. You know, that, like that, when Christopher Lambert shows up as the German director or the the is he swedish the swedish director and um, christopher lambert's of highlander and mortal Kombat. um <laughs> i'm just then, like um, what who is it who shows up with george clooney in the movie at the very very end oh uh, that's um oh uh, yeah I Cla- clancy about. brown um, he's in the yeah, beginning and yeah. the end yeah uh, yeah and the like, communist scene has has maybe the well not not quite the movie's key line but one of them which is when uh, he comes to the meeting and someone says, I miss the minutes. And then someone says, eh, don't worry about it. They're usually pretty boring. Because <laughs> it's, it's the movie takes place, of course, over 36 hours. Every minute, he's, Eddie Max is constantly looking at his watch. Uh, every second ticks by. Um, it, it's, again, sort of about this balance between finding his place in the system and his place in the universe. And he's trying to sort of find the value of the time that he spends versus the time that he has. Uh, and that line is just 
so saucy, and he is not around to hear it, sadly enough. Yeah, we like Josh Brolin in this too, right? I did, a lot. Yeah, I mean, he's playing his uh, square-jawed, tough guy role but again. Not but not mirthlessly, which he's done a lot of times. That's true. He's sensitive. He loves, he loves movies. He loves the movie business. He loves controlling and and helping bring these visions to people um it's it's a noble effort you know i love the line at the end i mentioned earlier just a he doesn't want an easy job i think that's really cool and i just think i just think about the coens i think about (laughs) making movies it's it brings a tear to my eye his performance here is very similar to the one that he gives in No Country for Old Men. I mean, it's a very different tone, of course. And but Gangster his, Squad, no. Oh God. Well, a little bit, actually. Uh, but his his function in the movie um, and, and how his character does and does not have to push the plot forward, I think, is very similar. And it involves a similar, similarly narrow range of uh, motion. <laughs> Yeah, he but, doesn't even really set the plot in motion in this. Like, he does No Country for Old Men. He's just kind of there to pick up the pieces from what's already been done. Yeah. Well, he what doesn't, you know. Him. And in No Country for Old Men, of course, he's he does set the plot in motion, but only through a roundabout way because uh, he steals the money effectively. And then he, telling his wife that he's making a very stupid decision, decides to go back to bring one of the guys uh, who was in the shootout water. And that's when he gets fucked. I Oh my god! I was looking at images of that movie, and I was stunned. I was—it's such a beautiful looking oh, it's movie. So beautiful. And like then the people get their heads blown out by the dog in the river, and like it, right. it like the sun comes up over the course of the chase. It's insane. Puts the revenant to shame. Yeah, give Roger Deakins that Oscar or <laughs> whatever. I don't care. Well, we've gushed about Hail Caesar quite a bit. <laughs> Maybe we should. So uh, good. We should wrap it up with a song. No dames. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no games. <laughs> we'll be searching high and low on the deck and down below. But it's a crying shame. Oh, we'll see a lot of fish, but we'll never clock a dish. We ain't gonna see a dame. No dames. We might see some octopuses. No dames. Or a half a dozen clams No names We might even see a boy maid But boy maid's got no gams No gams Hey Bachelors, what was this week's lightning round question? Yes, it was in honor of uh, Hail Caesar We wanted people to cast a current actor To play a classic Hollywood star in a comedy I have uh, one. I'm okay, I'm I'm it. stealing this because it's a it's the perfect answer. Um, at Julian Fadul said Joshua Ber- Berg Berge, uh, from Buzzard, a really what? funny, crazy little indie movie from last year, uh, as Buster Keaton. He looks exactly like him. And Julian, I'm going to retweet you so that people can see this image that you gave us because it's awesome. They look exactly, or and actually, yeah, no, they look exactly oh my the God, same. They do look exactly it's the crazy. same. It's yeah, crazy. It on, is I'm looking, crazy. I'm looking this guy up. That is crazy. The eyes, I don't know. That is, it's scary. I'm not it's, sure. Um, this, this Joshua plays a really angry character in Buzzard. It's funny, it's I really didn't frightening see it individual. watching Buzzard, but I He's see it Yeah, neither did I. Playing someone named Stubby Bill, apparently. <laughs> I hope he named his own character. Anyway, uh, great answer, but uh, there are some more, so you guys uh, yeah, go. Yeah, the one that I kind of gassed out was uh, Silver Whatever, saying Dominic Cooper and Kira Knightley as William Powell and Myrna Loy solving a Thin Man-style mystery. 
Uh, yeah, I don't think Keira Knightley really looks that much like Myrtle Loy, but those two together sounds pretty good to me. So, mm. And I love The Thin Man, so more and before that. I am going to uh, take the privilege of going last to pick two different answers, both uh, Carol-themed. The- uh, Matt Malone, by... By Ang, what? By in danger? I don't know where the. the it's his Blanga danger. Blanga danger. Oh, it's an L. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, it says she's already done Hepburn and Dylan, and is rumored to be doing Ball. So Blanchett as Cary Grant, why not? I would Cary if Kate Blanchett wants to play any man, especially a man from uh, old Hollywood. I am there. Wait, I, hold the, the kids phone, say, though. I am, I am so there for that. we could do a remake of the Philadelphia story that is all Kate <laughs> Blanchett plays all the parts. Kate Blanchett Absolutely. is supposed to be playing Lucille Ball in a movie? Yeah. Yes. She that's is. actually, that's going that's forward happening. pretty quickly, yeah. yeah. Uh, wow. Also, Jordan Banesh, Jump Jordan Jump, says Rooney Mara as Audrey Hepburn is 100% the correct answer here. Uh, I think it was Jennifer Love Hewitt did Audrey what? Hepburn once what? upon a time. Um, really? I believe. Let me. Uh, what what is the Audrey TV Hepburn movie. story that should be a movie? Uh, Maybe when she finds out about her disease. Yes, she did. Uh, in 2000s, the Audrey Hepburn story. And I think Rooney Mara, as. Rooney Mara is now 30, but um, I think this could still, off, still pull off. Certainly, of course, a Breakfast at Tiffany's era story, but even like a Roman Holiday era breakthrough story if she wanted to. I, wanna, uh, I don't know what the story to tell is of Audrey Hepburn, but uh, even as a short, it's too good to waste. The Nazis, probably. Oh. She's a little too old to play the childhood uh, you know, surviving the Nazis. I want but. a remake of Sabrina with Rooney Mara, and I can't decide who the older Harrison Ford uh, <laughs> plays in the Humphrey Bogart part you know, would be. As much as I would see that, I, I don't really know if we need another remake of no, Sabrina. Um, of Sabrina. <laughs> but oh wait, but no, sure. remake Charade, and then we'll have Kate Blanchett play Cary Grant, and it'll be a uh, Carol reunion, and it will make everybody happy. Wonderful. Great. I'm glad we settled that. That does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We'll get back next week. I'm sure talking about something that is way less fun than Kale Caesar. Because what could be? Deadpool uh, is that fun? Oh boy. He swears a lot. Oh, uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I'm the entertainment editor of Thrillist.com, and I am on Twitter at Mr. Patches. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a staff writer for Rolling Stone. You can also find some reviews of mine on Slate, where I reviewed Hail Caesar. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. And I am Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And please uh, send oh. suggestions for who should star in the Sabrina. You were on another podcast this week, too. I was. I was on a podcast called, oh my God. It's called Blank it's Check. Called Blank Check P-Night Chiama Cast. <laughs> I think it's just called Blank Check on I think podcast apps. I think look it up on iTunes. It's hosted by uh, Griffin Newman and David Sims. They did a very long series on the Star Wars prequels last year, which uh, I devoured, which is basically how I wound up on the show. Um, but yeah, it's, they're doing a series on In Might Shyamalan right now. And uh, I was on to talk about The Sixth Sense, which is so good. Your episode was very good. I, I was I so happy it. that uh, that movie holds up. And uh, if rumor has it, uh, someone else I'm talking to right now will be on I it. I think hopefully all of us will be on it at some point. It's true. So uh, may as well subscribe now and catch all of us. And uh, hopefully they promote fighting in the war room as intensely as we just did promote their podcast. I tried. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. We'll be back talking to you next week.